I'm Kathleen Goldhar, and I'm the host of a new podcast, Crime Story. Every week, we bring you a different crime, told by the storyteller who knows it best. You got one witness who can't be found. You got another witness who's murdered. We couldn't sugarcoat the story. I was getting calls from Cosby's attorney threatening to sue every day. Every crime in one way or another is a reflection of who we are as a people, as a city, as a country. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Damon Fairless. To defeat the divisive forces that would take freedom away, I want to say those fighting words to hear and to heed from my cold, dead hands. For years, the National Rifle Association has been synonymous with gun rights in the United States, thanks in part to the leadership of one man, Wayne LaPierre. The only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. LaPierre has been the CEO and executive vice president of the NRA since 1991, but he'll be stepping down from that post at the end of the month. The official reason? Health concerns. But the announcement comes just as he's set to face a civil trial on allegations of corruption and misuse of funds. It's just the latest in a series of legal battles the NRA has faced in recent years, all while bleeding membership and money. And it has some questioning whether the NRA's days as the face of American gun rights could be coming to an end. My guest today is Danny Hakem. He's an investigative reporter with The New York Times, and he's been covering the NRA for years, including this most recent trial. Hey, Danny, thanks for coming on FrontBurner. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. So I, I want to get into the trial that's going on in, in a little bit, but I, I guess first I want to start talking a little bit more about Wayne LaPierre, you know, the man. Uh, you got this really rare opportunity back in 2019, to, and, and you wrote this long profile on, on him, essentially, for the New York Times magazine. So I guess I guess I wanted to start out just getting a sense of what he's like. Like, How, how would you describe Wayne LaPierre? Well, uh, Wayne has led the National Rifle Association for more than three decades. And, you know, for, for most of his time as the leader, he's had this implacable image as the face of the gun rights movement. But, you know, meeting him, it struck me that he's, um, you know, he really doesn't come off that way in person, um, much more soft-spoken, sort of professorial individual. He's actually not, you know, not much of a, gun person marksman himself uh he's he's really more of a lobbyist than personally a gun enthusiast well there's that like on that note there's that i remember seeing this i think the new yorker came with with it a few years ago but there's that the kind of leaked video of 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 wayne lapierre and his wife with a guide in africa and they were hunting an elephant and i think that like i was kind of bowled away because he he's not good at gunning like he he he's pretty awkward he didn't, you know, he didn't strike me as an enthusiastic hunter. I, I guess, like, you know, I'm, I'm curious how a guy like that got involved with an organization that is so much about gun culture. Yeah, well, and just just to provide a little more detail there, I mean, that was video of 
him trying to shoot an elephant at point blank range during a safari. Come forward, now sit on your. Oh, there we are, showed you. Now shoot him. Same spot. Yeah. And he was He was. He had trouble doing that, and someone had to come and help him. I don't think. I don't think he's quite done yet. You want to do it? Or let him do it. I don't care. What am I doing? I'm not sure where you're shooting. Where are you telling me to shoot? Um, so yeah, he's not. And, and you know, he and I even talked about that you know when i interviewed him uh he talked about how that's been sort of a knock against him uh it's one reason i think why he did we went on safaris like that uh lobbying is a profession and a lot of lobbyists take on issues that you know are not necessarily things there um are central to their interests and you know i think that's what happened here though he is certainly when you get him talking about the the theory side of guns and Second Amendment issues, uh, he's certainly very passionate about that. But you know he's 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 a lobbyist, and this is the lobbying firm that he's run and really made a central part of American culture for for many years. There would be no firearm freedom in the world if it weren't for America. There would be no firearm freedom in America if it weren't for the Second Amendment. And there would be no Second Amendment, especially in Bill Clinton's America, if it weren't for you, the members of the National Rifle Association. One of the things that I actually wasn't aware of is the NRA as we know it now, it's politics, it's its mandate. It, it That really started to take shape back in the 70s. But before that, it was really quite different. Can, can you help me understand a little bit about what it was like prior to the, the 70s when the, the kind of modern NRA as we know it evolved? Sure. The, the NRA started after the American Civil War, and it was founded by a couple veterans in New York State who were looking for a group that could help improve marksmanship. You know, one of the, one of the founders was actually a, a newspaperman who'd been a New York Times correspondent at one point. Uh, but it started as a marksmanship group, and for really for the bulk of its history, it was focused not on politics in Washington, but on marksmanship and gun training and wildlife issues. And then in the 1970s, there was a, uh, a real power struggle within the organization, and it became a much more politically focused group. It became a real division within the group, and the people who wanted to make it more political are the ones who prevailed. And then the the group really focused on on building a lob- lobbying operation in Washington, working closely. It, and it, at first, it really worked closely with both Republicans and Democrats to you know to, to push back against gun control efforts. It had a lot. Of, it had a number of prominent lawmakers who were allies. At the same time, they were building their membership, you know, becoming a, a grassroots group as well. Uh, you know, at, the, at their height, they had nearly 6 million members. They started giving letter grades to everybody in Congress, which became a real pressure point for, uh, for people who were looking to gain their favor. They wanted to have that A grade from the NRA. The NRA believes that America's laws were made to be obeyed and that our constitutional liberties 
are just as important today as 200 years ago. The Constitution does not say that government shall decree the right to keep and bear arms. The Constitution says the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So we've seen since that push as a as a as a lobbying group, like there's been you know an enormous change in the political climate in the states, and and the you know at one point Congress was able to enact a ban on assault weapons, and that seems unthinkable now. So I guess I'm curious what the NRA's role in that political shift was. Well, that you know in my mind that's really the sort of the arc of Wayne LaPierre's tenure. At the beginning of his tenure, Congress passed, as you said, an assault weapons ban. This was in 1994, I believe it was signed into law. This day is the beginning, not the end, of our effort to restore safety and security to the people of this country. It was a temporary ban. You know, that was obviously a defeat at the time. Now, to do that now, as you said, it would be unthinkable for Republicans to support that kind of measure. And there just hasn't been there hasn't been any significant gun control law passed on the federal level for a number of years. And that I, I do think you have to give credit to LaPierre and the NRA, you know, for creating that dynamic. I mean, you saw so he had that loss early in his career as the chief of the NRA, but then he steadily built, you know, they steadily built influence. And one thing they did is rather than being bipartisan, instead they made a strategic shift and really inculcated themselves deeply into the Republican party. So it became a partisan issue, essentially. It, it became a deeply partisan issue. And so, you know, about 10 years after that assault weapons ban passing, they had what I think was probably the NRA's biggest triumph. I think it was in 2005 when uh, Congress passed a liability shield, which made it very difficult to sue gun makers uh, when crimes occur. Uh, it was a major victory. It was the NRA's number one priority for years. So that just shows you the shift that took place you know, in that decade. And, and and so I guess to put a finer point on it, so and and you're suggesting that Wayne Lapierre's role in the NRA was was it like a vital part of that shift into making the NRA's mandate essentially a a, a partisan issue and, and and saddling up with the Republicans? Yeah, no no doubt about it. I mean, he was the head of the organization for this whole period when this strategic shift took place, uh, and so that you know I think the bet he made was that they would be better served by really dominating one party rather than trying to work both. And, and also just making it very difficult for any Republican candidate to turn against the NRA. It just became very difficult for that to happen. So going back to this this federal you know ban on assault weapons, it, that expires. And then, you know, after that, in the period after that, we see this, you know, a fairly significant surge in the states of mass shootings. So, so how did LaPierre and the NRA respond to that rise? Well, it, it, it was striking because you, you had all these mass shootings. And, and I, I think one of the most prominent was uh, the one that happened in Connecticut, Sandy Hook, where many children were, were massacred by a gunman. 
And, you know, gun control groups understandably saw that as a major opportunity to pass gun control, because I think from their perspective, you know, if not now, when, when, when all our, you know, when so many children are getting uh, shot, but it did, it didn't really happen. And the, you know, the NRA's posture was just to take, despite all these mass shootings, to continue to take a hard line uh, to say that, you know, the second amendment is the second amendment. And, you know, we can't, we can't give any significant ground on these issues. Politicians pass laws for gun-free school zones. And in doing so, they tell every insane killer in America that schools are the safest place to inflict maximum mayhem with minimum risk. Yeah, I remember up here saying something like, you know, the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Was that, was that part of that response to the, the, those school shootings? I, I think that, you know, it's that kind of rhetoric that's really been central to the NRA for many years. And that's, um, you know, I think they've, you know, one way they raise money and fire up their base of supporters is uh, by making them angry. <laughs> They're certainly not the only group that does that. And so that's the kind of rhetoric that, that they've used over the years. We can't wait for the next unspeakable crime to happen before we act. We can't lose precious time debating legislation that won't work. We mustn't allow politics or personal prejudice to divide us. I'm Nala Ayed, host of Ideas. In this age of clickbait and online shouting, Ideas is a meeting ground for people who want to deepen their understanding of the world. Join me as we crack open a concept to see how it plays out over place and time and how it matters today. From the rise of authoritarianism to the history of cult movies, no idea is off limits. Ideas is on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts. So, you know, there's Wayne LaPierre and his leadership in, in, you know, at the helm, he's kind of guided uh, the NRA into this juggernaut of, of gun lobbying in the States. But there's also kind of a, in the background, this this other partner in this whole this whole transformation, too. And that's the NRA's partnership with a marketing firm called Ackerman McQueen. So can you tell me about them, about that relationship? Sure. They were the, the longtime PR and advertising firm, uh, Oklahoma-based, for the NRA. And it was Ackerman that really built this image of Wayne LaPierre as the strong and fiery leader of the group. They would write his speeches that he would give, which were full of red meat to fire everyone up. They really gave the NRA its voice for many years during the LaPierre era. During, I would say during the heyday of the LaPierre era. So, but there's been a major falling out between the NRA and Ackerman McQueen over the last few years. So, and I know it's it's really quite complex. We don't have time to get into the whole thing. But can you kind of briefly help me understand the spat that's going on there? Yes. So, so Ackerman was this, you know, the most important contractor the NRA has had for many years. Uh, and then around 2018, a falling out occurs. And, you know, a, a key issue is that Ackerman has been used, you know, was used in addition to doing PR and marketing, 
there was a lot of billing that LaPierre himself would do through Ackerman McQueen. So he had a, a credit card from the contractor and he would bill things through the company, which would, you know, make it more difficult to to trace expenses. So around 2018, 2019, these two groups are at odds. The attorney general in the state of New York begins an investigation in 2019. And even this is Letitia James, who's the New York attorney general. Right. And even while she's running for office, before she is the attorney general in 2018, she's threatening to investigate. These individuals in the NRA are charged with failing to manage the NRA's funds and failing to follow numerous state and federal laws, which contributed to the loss of more than $64 million in just three years. So they know this is coming. The NRA hires a new lawyer to sort of prepare them for this. That's William Brewer, yeah. That's that's uh, Bill Brewer, yes. And so he starts taking a number of steps to prepare the NRA for this, to take a look at their bookkeeping and oversight practices. And as part of that, there's a falling out with Ackerman McQueen. Okay, so so now, you know, this kind of all brings us to the present day. Wayne Lapierre is now facing the civil trial Take me through what he's been accused of. Sure. He's been accused of, you know, a, a variety of misspending. Uh, well, you know, one of the biggest things has been his spending on his wardrobe. Uh, the allegations are that he spent, uh, and this this really hasn't been disputed, that he spent hundreds of thousands of dollars at a boutique in Beverly Hills, uh, the Xenia Boutique, and even on one particular day, he spent uh, around $40,000 in a single day at this boutique, which... it's um, a lot of ties. That's a lot of ties. I don't know about you, but uh, that's a lot more than I've spent uh, shopping for suits. Wow. And so what else has he been uh, accused of spending this NRA money on? There's also, um, you know, travel around the world uh, to places like Lake Como, uh, the Bahamas, places all over uh, that he traveled to. And what was he doing there? Like, I mean, he's, I know he's argued that these were legitimate business expenses, but what he's, what is he doing in, you know, Lake Como and Palm Beach and Reno and all the places he's gone? Right. Well, I think that's, that's the question. I mean, I think the allegation is that he was vacationing the, you know, what he has said to me is there, there were, there were some, you know, legitimate business connection at each place he went to that was part of, part of those trips. So that's, you know, that's what's going to have to be sorted out. There were also uh, a number of trips he took to super yachts owned by one of the NRA's contractors. And again, these were in the Bahamas. Uh, so again, that's part of, of what's going to be hashed over at this trial. And then there were private jet flights uh, that he uh, took, which were quite expensive. And there are even times when there were private jets chartered when he wasn't even present for the flights where it was just his family members flying. So that's, that's definitely something that's going to be, that's all that's already come up at the trial. And, and it isn't just LaPierre, like the, the people kind of in his orbit too. There's some pretty astounding things I like, get, like I know his, his aide, Millie Hallow, 
uh, was kept on after being caught diverting 40 grand in NRA funds to her son's wedding uh, and some other personal expenses. There's uh, some exorbitant, I think a $26,000 a month uh, retainer fee for his personal uh, travel agent. So th- there was, uh, in his field of, of influence, th- there was a lot of this stuff going on as well, right? True. Very much so. Yeah. The the, uh, the woman you referred to, Millie Hallow, who was his close aide for many, many years, when the NRA hired her, she was already a convicted felon related to uh, misusing funds from a ch- another charity. And, and again, this already came up in the trial the other day. Uh, Attorney General's office was talking about how she continued to misuse funds, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in funds at the NRA to divert it for a variety of personal uses. And, and LaPierre presumably knew as well? I, you know, presumably, uh, presumably. I, you know, I think, again, we'll get more detail about that um, as the trial unfolds. Again, this is a civil suit. This is not a criminal investigation. So it's it's... You know, there's not a threat of jail in this litigation. And and just to be clear, the New York Attorney General has jurisdiction over the NRA because it was set up in New York. Okay, so this case is, you know, is predicated on, you know, accusations of of corruption, financial mismanagement. But the NRA has said it's all about politics. And and I know that James has, you know, said that she's seeking uh, a dissolution case. So do, do you have a sense of what her underlying motivation is? Well, let me just talk about the NRA's argument a little bit. While this is going on, they've filed a, a federal lawsuit against the state of New York uh, saying that they've had their First Amendment rights uh, violated. Uh, freedom of speech you know, first is the First Amendment. And you know, as, as part of that suit, they're saying that New York officials, and, and this is really more to do with the governor's office in New York, but they're alleging that, you know, New York state officials have been, you know, seeking to harm the NRA by putting pressure on banks and insurance companies not to do business with them. They paint sort of a broad picture of uh, New York officials in general targeting the NRA for its political beliefs and say that this is not, you know, this is not a legitimate prosecution. It's just been politicized. And they point out correctly, I would say, that Letitia James, the attorney general, was promising to go after the NRA before she was even elected. So they point to that and just say, well, that that shows that this is just a political campaign against them. You know, whatever James's motivations are, and clearly she was someone who, you know, had had issues with the NRA and its politics, but her case is about corruption and corrupt practices. And a lot of the revelations that have come out you know, I think probably will give pause to a, new, a judge in New York, uh, just in terms of the the kind of spending practices. So that's that's the challenge for the NRA is explaining those away. What they've tried to say is once this investigation was going, or, or maybe even right before it started, but when it was clear that this was going to happen, they started. Brewer came in, as I said, and started taking steps to try to you know reform the NRA to some extent. Yeah, to, to get it to clean house, essentially, right, with its, its spending practices. Yeah, because because the, the writing was on the wall. So, so, I mean, a lot of these issues that 
Letitia James is, is is pursuing here, you know, come back to Lapierre and, and his both his personal spending, but also spending practice and hiring practice within the NRA. I, what, what has he said about these accusations? Well, when I talked to him, you know, he had arguments for, for all these things. I mean, when I asked him, you know, why did you spend, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, on all these suits? And he said, well, I was the face of the brand. And, you know, our, our contractor, Ackerman McQueen, which was our PR firm, was telling me to do this. You know, that was his contention there. When I asked him about, you know, his various travels around the world, I think I think the general, he came up with a, a rationale for, for each one of those, whether it was to Lake Como or to the Bahamas or wherever it was. But again, I think, um, you know, I think it's going to be for, you know, we'll have to see if the court buys the uh, that argument when he makes it before them. And, and and you've mentioned it's a civil trial, it's not a criminal trial. So what kind of repercussions could he be looking at if if uh, things don't go his way? Well, he's already on the eve of the trial, and this was a surprise, uh, he stepped down as the head of the NRA. So that was that was probably the biggest, uh, you know, that was the biggest thing to be determined in the trial. So you know, and not surprisingly, the attorney general was declaring victory right from the get-go because that is what she wanted. Um, so uh, he's already stepped down. Now, she is seeking to have him officially barred from serving on nonprofits going forward. So that's that's one thing. The other thing is she'd like him to write a, quite a large check. And, you know, this would be several hundred thousand dollars, if not more, potentially. Ironically, this check wouldn't go to the state. It would go back to the NRA because the idea is you're alleging this is a nonprofit that has been mismanaged. They've mismanaged donor funds. So you're trying to recoup the money that has been mismanaged and restore it to the nonprofit. <laughs> that would have to be a really big check. But, but the sense I got from, from your reporting in particular is that you know the NRA has been uh, it's been bleeding money it's been you know its membership is you know, really quite spectacularly reduced um so so i guess i'm curious what what the state of it is after these ongoing legal struggles uh this infighting where's where does it stand as an organization well it's it's really much diminished from what it was in its heyday uh in the last i think 5 6 years revenue has come down something like 40 some percent the membership has come down in that period from nearly six million to about four point two million today, and, and and also it's just a much quieter organization than it was. It used to be very voluble, either Lapierre or it had spokespeople who were always gaining a lot of attention, who went out on cable news and and it, it had its own TV station. It had, had, it had right? its own kind of network. online online network. Yeah. All that's really gone now. I mean, it's 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 it to a large extent it's lost its voice. And what you've seen is there are other gun rights groups that have come to the fore in its place. I, I think one of the things that strikes me here is that so you know the NRA seems it's it's certainly diminished. It may be failing as an organization, but not not it hasn't failed in terms of that organization's mandate, right? Like in terms of its. It's, it did what it needed to do in terms of uh, advocating for gun rights in the state. So, so I guess even if this is the beginning of the end of the NRA, does it, does it really matter? I mean, has it, has it done its job? 
Well, yeah, I would say two things to that. One is I, I agree with you that despite all its troubles, you still can't get gun control passed at the federal level in the United States. So in that sense, and I do think the organization, the NRA, played the major role in creating that political dynamic. The second thing I would say is, I don't think, you know, while it's in bad shape now, I think, again, ironically, on the other side of this trial and LaPierre's departure, you could come out of this with a revived NRA uh, once they get past the problems around his leadership in the last few years. You know, it, there is potential for the organization to to be revived. So I wouldn't I wouldn't write it write it off just yet. Danny, it was great talking to you. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. All right, that's all for today. Frontburner was produced this week by Rafferty Baker, Shannon Higgins, Joyta Shangupta, Matt Muse, and Derek Vanderweyck. Sound design was by Mackenzie Cameron and Sam McNulty. Music is by Joseph Shabison. Our senior producer is Elaine Chow. Our executive producer is Nick McCabe-Locos. And we want to give a special shout-out this week to the newest member of the Frontburner family. Our producer, Lauren Donnelly, gave birth recently to a healthy baby boy. And man, does that kid have an awesome head of hair. Congratulations, Lauren. I'm Damon Fairless. Frontburner will be back next week. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.